Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and this is our very first podcast. We're very excited to launch this podcast. And uh, Dennis and Chris and I, we've had some really great conversations about liturgy, and we really want you to be able to partake in these conversations. So that's why this podcast exists. We want to have great conversations that other people can listen to and learn from. So without further ado, our very first episode, episode one of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. No, we're recording right now. Okay, well, we're that's definitely all, that's recording. That's all you need to know. This is the this is the very first episode of the very first podcast on liturgy. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not. That hey. might be it. Can we say that even if we know it's not true? That is the first episode of the first podcast uh, on liturgy. Yeah, like ever. It might be. I don't think this is the first podcast on liturgy, but it will be the best. Chris, do you listen to podcasts? Would you even listen to this podcast that we're making right now? Well, it depends. <laughs> Ask me at five o'clock. <laughs> You're not a podcast listener. No, I've listened to some over the past couple of weeks to uh, get a get a flavor for it. Which podcast were you listening to? Well, I listened to the Catholic stuff. You should know. Mm-hmm. And I listened to a couple of these. I think it's, they're called Cat Catholic Family in a Small Town or something like what? that. What? What's that one? It's a husband wife. It's not a liturgical one. It's a Catholic. Oh, one. it's a small podcast. You would never heard of it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably a big family in a small town. I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes more sense. Uh, so, Chris, what do you do and who are you? What do I do? Yeah. What I do is uh, my uh, real job is uh, I'm a husband and uh, That's your father. Real job? Sure. Tell me what your fake job is. My fake job <laughs> is? Well, the, the other job that I have that supports my real job is mm-hmm. uh, uh, I am a liturgist or a liturgeist as uh, my uncle would call me. I work for the... As opposed uh, to a poltergeist? Something like that, okay, yes. They're related. Really? Yeah. We'll get uh, into that on in another episode, oh, I think. There are spirits involved. There are, yes. Mm. Like, that, that's what geist is? Yes. Geist is ghost. Yeah. Oh, or spirit. Yeah. We're already starting. This is mm. so great. Yeah. So my uh, uh, real job is I'm the director of the Office for Sacred Worship in the Diocese of La Crosse, Wisconsin. And I've done that for about uh, 18 years now. I am an alum of the Liturgical Institute. Oh, what's that? An alum? It's like a liturgical institute. No, no, Institute. Liturgical institute. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, uh, an institute uh, on the liturgy, founded by Cardinal George. <laughs> I, thought, and, I thought that was going to be it. Just yeah, <laughs> no. Founded by uh, Cardinal George and uh, Monsignor Francis Mannion in the year 2000. And Dennis McNamara. And Dennis Thank McNamara, you. yes. Wow. Just because uh, I'm the only one left doesn't mean you can't admit I was here at the beginning. Well, well and I'm the only one right, so... <laughs> and, <laughs> I was thinking 2000 to, uh, how would you say it, Dennis, to um, uh, focus more closely on liturgical studies through uh, the sacramental, what do you call the sacramental approach? So maybe more on that in a little bit. But mm-hmm. uh, since then, I've been a, a visiting faculty member here at the Institute and uh, Mondelein Seminary. And uh, recently, I've become the uh, editor of the Autoramus Bulletin, too. So those are the three things I do to support my real job, which is Serving the church oh, uh, by uh, being a, a husband and father. Chris, how long uh, have you been in charge of 
worship and liturgy in your diocese? Uh, 18 years. 18 years. Yeah. Wow. So quite a lot of experience. And he knows the answer to every question. Mm-hmm. All I have to do is then pick why up are the you phone. here? Mm-hmm. Oh, for the good looks, wit, humor, okay. charm. You have a face made for a podcast. It's perfect. Look at me. Oh, you have no idea how many times we made that joke. Yeah, don't <laughs> Google me, please. Uh, so, Dennis, you helped with the Liturgical Institute on the ground floor. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was way back in the year 2000, and I just finished my doctorate in architectural history at the University of Virginia. And uh, didn't really know what a liturgical institute was at the time. If you had asked me then to define liturgy. It's an institute where you study liturgy. Yeah, thanks to Chris's uh, self-referential explanation. But I didn't know. I, didn't, I couldn't have defined liturgy. If someone had said to me at the end of the day, hey, what is this liturgy thing? I wouldn't have been able to answer it, even though I was raised Catholic, observant Catholic. And um, since then, I've used my background combining with sacramental theology and the liturgical institute's programs of study to really help to rediscover the deep meaning of art and architecture in the Catholic tradition. What, uh, Dennis, what, what is it that really drew you in with liturgy? Like you said, you didn't really know a lot about liturgy. What was it that kind of drew you in? Well, I think most of us think of church as that place you have to go on Sunday because if you don't, God will be angry. There's some sort of duty to God, which is true. You know, God created us. And just as we have duties to our own parents we have, and our own children, we have duties uh, to God. If you say duties one more time. Oh, duty, duty, <laughs> duty. But you know the... the father speaking there. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the legal basis of liturgy is interesting enough. You know, you owe God reverence and you have to thank him for creating you in the world. But when you really see the happy side of this, which is God wants us to be freed from sin, sorrow, and death, it, both in our own persons and in our intellectual life and in our heart and our emotions and our bodies and in the whole fallen world, and that the liturgy is the way that is overcome. And just like a father wants his child to grow up to be happy and healthy, the, the God the Father through the Son wants us to grow up to be holy and, and perfect as he's perfect. And that suddenly, it's more like exercise. You know, cause if someone forced you to go to the gym and say, lift heavy things because mm-hmm. I said so. Yeah, that'd be awful. It will. I try to do that with Chris all the time to get him to come to the, <laughs> to the gym. You would say, oh, why, is it, why are they making me do this slave-like work? But if you understand you're getting healthy, you're growing strong, and you're doing it of your own free will, and then you see your coach encouraging you how to become stronger and better and healthier, it's a completely different experience. And understanding mm-hmm. the liturgy helps that transition, helped me that, for that transition from the legal duty and requirement, there's duty again, mm-hmm. and uh, to something to delight in. <laughs> and this is what the whole 20th century rediscovered, the Vatican mm-hmm. Council too uh, rediscovered. We'll be talking about this for weeks after week. Absolutely. Chris, what about you? What, what, what's the big draw for you in, in liturgy? You've been doing this a long time. What was it that really kind of sparked that in you? Well, my motives weren't as uh, good as uh, Dennis's here. I didn't study liturgy initially. I was a, first in college, I was a fisheries biologist. Oh, and, uh, Scott in, Harder was a wildlife and who was Scott, Father Scott Harder. Oh yeah, we're both from Nebraska too. Oh wow. Yeah, um, there's, there's not dirt, a, dirt and fishes major, isn't it? Dirt <laughs> and tree <laughs> major. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, I live in Wisconsin now, and we have uh, Great Lakes on two sides of us. Nebraska didn't have any Great Lakes, so mm-hmm. it was maybe a peculiar uh, lakes of corn. La- well, some, uh, uh, amber waves certainly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so when I was first, uh, married, I needed a job and there was an opening in, the in the diocese of La Crosse in the liturgy office. And so really that was my first motivation was to, was to find a job, but, uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful that that's, uh, uh, how it began. Uh, 
once I got to understand more about the liturgy, uh, like Dennis says, there, there's so much behind the scenes and beneath the surface that uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't at first uh, strike the eye, but when you see what's really happening in the liturgy, it's, it's beautiful and it's exciting and it's joyful and it's attractive, like beauty is. Beauty uh, uh, is an attractive thing. It's the, the, the attraction of the truth. And so once uh, and the Liturgical Institute was, was excellent in helping me and, and others to see what is really happening uh, behind the liturgy. It is the most beautiful thing in the world. And so it can't help but be uh, attractive. So to be sure, we can get uh, sidetracked by other you know, less essential details. But to see what's really at the heart of it is, uh, is a great and beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. I think I have a little bit in common with both of you. Um, I, I needed a job. And so uh, I was hired here in, in August, but at the same time, like you, Dennis, I didn't really know a lot about liturgy. But when I started working here, um, we, we made those Elements of the Catholic Mass videos and just throughout our conversations um, at, at the lunch table, which is really kind of the, the uh, genesis of this, this podcast, is that I, I've really enjoyed sitting around having conversations about liturgy, which I never would have said, you know, nine plus months ago. And it's, it really there is a really big draw in me to learn more about the liturgy. And uh, once you, once you scratch, start scratching at the surface, there's so much more that's, that's, it's deep. It's really deep. Yeah. If I can uh, throw in this quote at this point, um, sure. we're not the first persons to ask what is the liturgy or why is it attractive mm-hmm. uh, or what had us interested in it. Um, St. John Paul II in an address uh, in 1985, he says uh, the liturgy, everybody speaks about it, writes about it, discusses it. It's been commented on, it's been praised, it's been criticized, but who really knows the principles and norms by which it's put into practice? In other words, lots of people have an opinion about the liturgy. A lot of people have an opinion about the liturgy. <laughs> they, they do, they do it. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, uh, yeah, every, as he says, everybody writes about it, talks about it, praises it, criticizes it, but who really knows what it is at its heart and what its essence is? And it, until you know that, then you know the opinions that we might have... Uh, you know, are not on solid ground. Right. And strangely, I've never taken a course in brain surgery and mm-hmm. I have very few opinions in brain surgery. <laughs> Most people have never studied the liturgy past their sixth grade CCD class or whatever it was. And yet everybody's got an opinion because they've lived it and living the liturgy uh, helps you to understand what it is. But have you been taught well? Has it been modeled well in your parish? When you get back to the essentials that the church asks us to understand, then suddenly it's like going back to the ground level and letting that knowledge flower again. And so hopefully that's what we'll do here is be able mm-hmm. to help people understand and share our own uh, acquired knowledge of these things. Uh, Dennis, you know, let's say you're, you're meeting somebody for the first time and they've got a lot of issues with, with the mass and how it's done. Oh, I've what, met those people before. <laughs> uh, don't name names now. We can do that later. Um, but w- what's like the, the most basic thing that you would, uh, you would use to basic thoughts that you use to help somebody understand what the liturgy is just at the, very, very front door, you know, before getting, you know, really too deep. Well, it's hard not to be deep because what we're talking about is inherently mm-hmm. deep. Mm-hmm. But Vatican II says it's the uh, exercise. I want to be in the kiddie pool right now. Well, yeah. well, well, it'll be a deep but warm <laughs> kiddie pool. Uh, the exercise I hope of the not pr- too warm because we all know. <laughs> <Yee>. <laughs> the exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. This is what Vatican II says the liturgy is, which, you know, at first you say, what does that mean? But essentially, you know, God made us. If you look at salvation history, uh, Adam and Eve chose against God in certain ways, and that inaugurated this division between God and humanity. And although we're not completely separated from God and never have been, 
the process of becoming restored in relationship with God is what um, the whole mission of salvation history is about. And the particularly useful way, the particularly efficacious way, is Christ became one like us, so he could take our humanity back to the Father. So the humanity had been separated to some degree from the Father, and Christ could bring it back. So uh, liturgy is the process of Christ reuniting us to God the Father. And you say, well, what's so exciting about that? Except God the Father is the source of every good thing, and every good thing mm-hmm. we want comes from him, and Christ bridges that gap. And liturgy is kind of the exercise of that activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Dennis is uh, absolutely right here. In, Thank you uh, very uh, much, Chris. <laughs> Say on, that as on, many on times point, as you like. On this point, we'll get carried away here. But I think uh, sometimes in, in class um, with, uh, with first theologians or even adult formation or whatever the, the context might be, you know, we have this one assignment where um, you're supposed to explain the essence of the liturgy, say, to, a, uh, to an eighth grade class, and that you can write a whole paper about the liturgy and not mention Jesus is, uh, is unthinkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, so as Dennis said at the beginning, it's hard not to be deep or into the deep end when you talk about the liturgy because the first thing and the last thing is this work of Jesus Christ, without which you can't understand anything of the liturgy. And so it, it really is uh, uh, you know, amazing how many liturgical you know, opinions or conversations or writings or readings, or whatever it might be, uh, there are, but Jesus and his saving work is, is not a part of it. And that, is, uh, that seems to be kind of, to my mind, liturgical principle 101. And if I can try to make a clever analogy here about your uh, baby pool or the deep end, Dennis mentioned that it's the priestly work, and there's this beautiful, um, uh, in, in Latin, the word for priest is, pon- well, in one of them is pontifex, pontifex, or the pontifex maximus. And so we still hear this term uh, today, mostly in, in reference to uh, the Holy Father. We call him the supreme pontiff. But in, uh, um, I guess, in classical Roman civilization, the, the pontifex maximus was the great high priest. And the word pontifex means literally bridge builder. So a pons, a pontus is, is a bridge, like a pontoon boat, for example, is a little floating bridge. Uh, and the pontifex is somebody who builds a bridge. And the maximus is the greatest bridge builder ever. And this is what Jesus is, the Pontifex Maximus, who bridges, who builds this bridge. This is what a priest does so that we can be, you know, go over the deep end, the abyss that was mm-hmm. opened up by Adam and Eve, and, and take this bridge back to God the Father. I mean, that's the essence of the liturgy. That's the heart it's of the liturgy. pretty good analogy. Well, and it, not to see that is to, miss, uh, is to miss what's really there. And so many people will say, well, I have to go to Mass, and if I don't go, it's a mortal sin. Anybody even thinks about mortal sin anymore. That's such basic stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I have to love my wife today, and if I don't, it's a mortal sin. Well, no, it's it's the delightful process of doing that that uh, is a much more exciting way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dennis, why do you think that um, we have so many people that are so... You were talking about, you know, you're not a brain surgeon, so you don't have opinions about a brain, brain surgery. Why do you think so many people are so opinionated about different aspects of the liturgy, I mean, when you when you talk about it to somebody who who's rooted in and rooted a, a deeply rooted Catholic, um, it can it can get intense sometimes. Why do you think that is? Well, people believe what they believe about liturgy because it's very close to them. They've been doing it their whole lives, and they think of it as theirs. So if you think about a church and someone wants to close a church, for for example, it's almost like taking their house away or someone mm-hmm. sits in their regular spot in the pew. They do think of it as their own, and that's a good thing. It is, right? It's so close to us, and it becomes such an acquired habit. And then people teach you one definition or, or another. 
Um, and but the the sign of the universal church, at the universal church, and the point of unity is around Peter and the teaching of the church. Sometimes, if you say, "Well, keep coming back to the documents," or "What does the catechism say?" people will accuse you of being limited or you're too uh, legalistic or rule bound. But imagine if we had traffic laws, and you know, one town green lights meant stop, and red lights mean go. There'd be car accidents, you know, all over the mm-hmm. place. Preserving the health. Or sometimes, sometimes you drive on the other side of the road. I yeah, mean, like in England, right? Exactly. Yeah. When I was there, I almost crashed into a number of people oh, head on yeah. several times. Um, but the unity around those questions is um, what helps us all pray as one. And you know, there are a number of people. Aidan Kavanaugh and David Fagerberg have made it, um, you know, pretty well known in liturgy circles. This distinction between a liturgist and a litur- liturgiologist. What's a, what? A, what is that? I mean, I've never even heard that second word. Liturgiologist. Any anytime you add ology to something, it means the study of something. Mm-hmm. So one who studies liturgy could be an atheist, or they could be whatever. Or an atheologist. Uh, that would be the study of atheists, oh, right? Okay. Exactly. <laughs> um, someone who does. I imagine some Catholics are atheologists then. <laughs> But someone who swims swim, is a swimmer, right? Mm-hmm. Someone who studies swimming as a sport is a swimologist or whatever mm-hmm. that is. N- Nordiologist. What, what is there? Some swim. Nordicologist or something yeah. like that. Any, yeah. In any case, studying something is not the same as doing something. And most people are liturgists because they do the liturgy. And then you try to bring them around by saying, well, you could be a liturgiologist for a while. You know, study this. What are you doing? Know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And if you know what you're doing, you can do it better and more fully. This is why Vatican II asks for full conscious participation. Conscious meaning know what you're doing. And so the liturgical institute's programs are not just liturgiologist programs, although they are. We have you know, degrees in, in liturgical studies. But our students pray every day, morning prayer, evening prayer, and mass. So they're liturgists and liturgiologists, and the grace of the liturgy flows into the classroom, and the knowledge from the classroom flows into prayer. And uh, that's one of the really unique things about our program. Yeah, I I was uh, speaking at a Catholic school once, and the the principal very uh, had this great insight. Said that you know the largest room on our campus is the chapel, and that's not accidental because that's where all of these things come to life, and it's the source from which. You know, all of the other learning that happens in the smaller classrooms take place. And there's something similar here. I mean, the largest building on the campus uh, at the University of St. Mary of the Lake is, is, is the beautiful chapel. And that the studies are integrated, uh, lead to, and flow from uh, the liturgical prayer is a great uh, uh, you know, aspect of the liturgical institute. But when it comes to the study of the liturgy here, and this was uh, Cardinal George's insight, Monsignor Mannion's insight, was, you know, a, there's a variety of ways that one can be a liturgiologist or can study uh, the liturgy. You can look at it through uh, his, almost uh, exclusive historical lenses. And the h- history of the liturgy is something very important to know. But uh, I remember Dr. Fagerberg made some sort of uh, analogy like this. He's saying, you can know everything there is to know about the post-baptismal anointing in the 4th century East uh, Syrian church. But who does? <laughs> That's well, the... but even if you did, mm-hmm. how does that benefit uh, your pastoral care of John and Mary Catholic who are about to have their child baptized? Mm-hmm. So the history is important to a certain extent, but we're trying to make them and their child into saints to become fully alive. Mm-hmm. Or you can study the liturgy from almost exclusively rubrical or canonical or legislative uh, angle as well. And those are important too, as Dennis said, you know, we need to have some consistency with rules and laws and regulations, but um, you know, that doesn't get to the heart of it either. You know, what this sacramental approach to liturgical studies and then in the end liturgical practice 
why it's so uh, uh, beneficial, fruitful, insightful, is that it gets you to the true heart of the matter, which is the heart of the Redeemer, Christ uh, building this bridge. Um, and, you know, that's what's exciting. You know, studying rubrics may be exciting to some, or, study, <laughs> or studying uh, fourth century uh, uh, Eastern liturgies might be uh, exciting to some. A few more. But, uh, you know, coming to a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ uh, as alive and present to us today as he was 2,000 years ago, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's exciting. That's a, attractive. And, you know, a few years ago, Peter John Cameron, Father Peter John Cameron, was here uh, doing a conference on preaching. And for a long time, he did the Socratic method with all the participants, and he said, what does everybody in the pews in a church want to know? And went around for about 20 minutes. How long the homily is. How long? Well, oh. the homily <laughs> could go a long time. But he said, everyone in the pews wants to know what's wrong with me and what do I do about it? That's the fundamental question. So you read some reading. We're from supposed my, to be in the shallow end here, Dennis. That's pretty deep. Yeah, I know it's deep. What's, <laughs> what's wrong? Don't even answer, begin to answer the question, what's wrong with me? But we all know what's wrong with us, right? We don't do what we want to do. We do what we don't want to do. Uh, reading Isaiah is interesting, S- studying Hebrew is interesting, but fundamentally it comes down to how is the fall, the, the effects of the fall in me and operative in me, and how do I get fixed? And the liturgy is God's and Christ's continuing action in the world to fix us, glorify us, and restore him to the Father. And that's really important stuff, you know, and that's what a liturgist does, and a liturgiologist helps a liturgist do that more effectively and more completely. A couple of things come to mind there as you're, as you're speaking. Uh, again, this is an insight from David Fagerberg. You know, when, Jesse, when, you're, when your daughter or one of your kids gets cut or you get cut, what do you put on that, on that cut or that burn? But My daughter never gets injured, ne- and never, she never will. That's right. She's perfect. <laughs> you put uh, uh, an ointment or a salve, a salve, and he suggested that the root of salvation is this anointing of uh, the Spirit through Jesus, uh, from Jesus Christ, uh, onto our wounds that heals us and restores us and elevates us and perfects us, uh, salve and, sal- and salvation. And, you know, the other thing, too, about what, what is wrong with us, uh, I think it was Chesterton who said this was the only, only Christian doctrine that you can uh, prove by reading the news. You know, and if anybody has any uh, doubts if there's something wrong with, it's mostly wrong with other people, isn't it? <laughs> Wrong always. with us. it's always other people. <laughs> then uh, the, the evidence is uh, is surrounding us and within us. Right. Um, and this is why liturgical reform in the mid twentieth century was considered so urgent. Because what had they just been through? World War Two, Great Depression, World War One, the threat of nuclear bombs. A lot of questions coming out of that. All the nineteenth yeah. century, the French Revolution. It seemed like the world was going down the tubes. And what's the remedy to humanity's dysfunction? The grace of God. How do you get it? Through Jesus Christ. What's the method that that's distributed to us primarily and principally, the source and summit, is the liturgy. And if people aren't participating in the liturgy for whatever reason, then no wonder the world's going down the tubes. And so that's still the same question we have. You know, people can get very despairing about the condition of the world. Um, But if you can get people to understand the source of that nourishment to be transformed in the liturgy, then hopefully the world will be transformed in a better direction. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, I, I do have a question. Um, I'm sure you've come across something like this. Uh, it, it seems to me that there's often kind of a fine line between, I guess, what we're saying, uh, one who's a liturg- liturgiologist and one who's a, a liturgist. So we, we have the study of, of the liturgy and all the intricacies, the rubrics and all, all of this. And then we also have, you know, the, the mass in practice. Um, 
you know, the whole pastoral nature, evangelizing, all of that. Why do you think that there is sometimes like kind of a thin layer between, you know, being really involved in the, the detail of liturgy and, and all the intricacies as opposed to, you know, living that out? Are they, are they mutually enriching or do we start with a liturgiologist, you know, a vantage point learning how to best worship and pray and then that leads into our life? Well, I think uh, they should be or ought to be mutually enriching. Um, to be a liturgist or liturgiologist is not uh, uh, at the expense of being a, a liturgist, that is somebody who's, who's worshiping in the pews. You know, why the, the what's the expression? Uh, the devil's in the details, or mm-hmm. our, for our purposes, it would be God's in the details, mm-hmm. right? You know, uh, our liturgy is, uh, again, this is Cardinal George's and Monsignor Mannion's uh, beautiful insight, and it's not their own, of course, but... Uh, uh, the sacramental approach that, you know, this this unseen reality of the Pontifex Maximus reconnecting us to God, healing us and elevating us, uh, that is not exclusively given to us in the liturgy, but that's the privileged means that he has determined that he comes to us. And so it's in the, it's in the sacramental signs and symbols that Jesus comes to us. And so, so much uh, hinges upon the sign and the symbol, the details, the rubrics, the rules, how it's uh, uh, how it's conveyed to us. That because those things are so important, you know, the, the risk is on the one hand, I think that you can get caught up in the details and lose sight of what they're trying to portray or give to us, or conversely, you can be. Uh, very much looking at uh, the heart of the matter, but forgetting that the heart of the Redeemer is given to us in sacramental signs that we, we kind of poo-poo uh, those elements. We kind of duty them. We duty them, yes. <laughs> uh, but they both go together. It's, uh, I, I, again, I hope this is an apt analogy, you know, with, with, uh, with say, rubrics or rules or details or whatever it is, is that, you know, uh, a work of art, this is, I, I don't know as much Chesterton as I might be letting on here, but he has this, uh, this wonderful analogy that, you know, an artist is bound by rules, that the artist, the free-spirited, free-thinking, creative artist is bound by rules. If uh, he tries to draw a giraffe with a short neck, he finds he's not able to do that. And so as this is the case naturally, so it is supernaturally that what rubrics and, uh, and rules and laws and the details of the ritual and liturgical preparation is uh, those rules help the reality to shine out, to shine forth in a more beautiful way. So there is or should not be any competition between you know, the study of and the details and the planning of liturgical uh, celebrations and their participation. They should, go, they should go together. They must go together. Mm-hmm. I suppose if I ever drew a giraffe that had a short neck, I would just call it a llama and say... Yeah, that's, that was. My that would intent. be one way around yeah, it. Yeah. Now, and as your daughter gets older, you will you will have pictures. I know your daughter is uh, <laughs> is perfect, but uh, <laughs> you'll end up with all sorts of uh, strange uh, creatures that will be pasted on. She's perfect now, but wait till she starts sitting. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And you know, one of the good analogies about liturgy is very similar to exercising. There's something extremely practical about liturgy because it actually does something to you. It does something near you, and you do something. So if you wanted to become a violinist, you would say, what are the rules of the violin? How do I get a violin? What are the strings? What are the notes? And you'd have a teacher who'd say, move your finger that way, not that way, and you can excel if you do this. And by the time you're doing this a while, you're a violinist. You're not a non-violinist who plays the violin. 
your bones, your mental habits, your nerves, your muscles, the flexibility you have, the intention you have and um, capacity to concentrate, those, that's a violinist. You are different than you were before. And in liturgy, you hear the words of heaven sung, you sing the words of heaven, you see the sights of heaven and the angels and saints and the paintings and the statues, you eat the food of heaven in the Eucharist, you touch the hand of your neighbor in a sign of peace, even though you're living in a world full of war and disagreement. And so the idea is you become heavenly by doing heavenly things. And if you don't do the heavenly things, then you become either less heavenly or something else. And so the rules are not there for their own sake, but they're there to ensure that the outcome is what uh, it ought to be. Absolutely. Well, this has been a real pleasure, gentlemen. But I think it's time for an email. An email question from a listener. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, are you guys ready for the very first Liturgy Guys question? Is it an easy one? Oh, I guess we'll find out. Mm. Uh, this comes to us from Anonymous, and uh, Anonymous, Anonymous says, It's my understanding that either a funeral or wedding mass set on a Saturday after 4 p.m. is valid for a Sunday mass, even if the readings used are not for that Sunday. Where can I find the information? Dennis, do you want to start? You're a worship office director. You know these things. Oh, yeah. We, we, we know all things liturgical. I hope we didn't stump you the very first week. Well, we'll see. Uh, well, th- this is uh, where I think the answer is to be found. Uh, this is in the uh, Code of Canon Law, the section under Sacred Times. It's Canon uh, 1248, number one, and it says this. A person who assists at a Mass celebrated anywhere in a Catholic rite, either on the feast day itself or in the evening of the preceding day, satisfies the, oblig- the obligation of participating in the Mass. All right, so that's a Code of Canon Law, Canon 1248, number one. So what it's saying, right, is that any Mass celebrated on that Sunday or the evening before, okay? So a uh, couple of things to note. One, uh, the, the 4 o'clock time, this, the, the Code doesn't give what constitutes the evening before, this, I think, uh, I'm not entirely sure about this. It's either local bishops' conferences or perhaps even the diocesan bishop determines when the evening before starts. So that it's possible that in some places it could be, I don't, I don't know if it could be earlier than 4, but it could be later than 4. So there's a little bit, little, little bit of variation there. I don't think there's anything uh, canonically that defines uh, when the evening before starts. But what it says is any Mass in a Catholic rite so a wedding mass at 5 o'clock on a Saturday night, does that fulfill the Sunday obligation according to that uh, canon? Yes, it does. What about if uh, the bishop were going to come to uh, your parish and celebrate the rite of confirmation on a Sunday in ordinary time? The ritual mass is permitted. You can use readings for the rite of confirmation, the orations for rite of confirmation. Do you need to go to Mass again to fulfill your Sunday obligation? No, because that fulfills your obligation. What about, and Dennis Dennis will know this one, uh, what about uh, the dedication of a church or altar? That's supposed to take place on a Sunday when lots of people can gather. And there are particular readings that must be used. Um, I think it's the reading from Ezekiel. That has to be used for the dedication of a church. There's proper orations. Does that fulfill your Sunday obligation? Yes, it does. 
Uh, what if you didn't go to a Roman, uh, Roman rite liturgy at all? What if you went to a Maronite rite liturgy? Like on a Saturday after yeah, four. Or a Sunday, sure. Uh, or uh, would that fulfill your obligation as a Roman rite Catholic? Yes. So there doesn't seem to be in the code or any of the other liturgical books that I'm aware of that says which mass or which sets of readings need to be used. All that the code is telling us is that if you go to uh, uh, a Catholic mass uh, in, uh, in any rite, then that would fulfill the obligation. Again, that's canon 1248, number one. Dennis, do you feel like that, uh, that answers the question? Well, it seems legally that it might fulfill the obligation, but uh, my, my gut seems to not like this idea because you're supposed to celebrate the Mass of the day. Ideally, you're supposed to fulfill the requirements of the liturgical season, the ordinary time calendar, and if you're not actually using the prayers of that Sunday, aren't you not quite fulfilling the uh, expectation of the experiencing of the liturgical year? Uh-oh, we have a disagreement on our very first <laughs> liturgy guy's question. Yeah, but the disagreement is between Dennis's gut and the Code of Canon Law. The code of Canon Law wins. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I think we got our question. Your gut might be big, but the Code of Canon <laughs> Law is bigger. <laughs> uh, I think we got our, our question answered. If you want to submit your very own question to the Liturgy Guys, you can... Or uh, correct any of the answers that might be wrong. Oh, man, please don't open that door. Oh, we're going to get so <laughs> many emails. If you want to submit a question to the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Submit your question. Can't guarantee that we get your question on the podcast, but uh, stay tuned and, and maybe we end up answering it. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.